This morning, we will begin with Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. So if you want to go ahead and turn there in your digital device or your paper device, uh, you can do that. And as I read back through this section of Scripture, there are three principal characters I want you to pay attention to. King Herod, the chief priests and the scribes, and the wise men. And not only do I want you to pay attention to them, but I want you to pay attention to each one's response to the announcement that Jesus has been born, that the long-awaited Messiah has been born. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. The first character we will pay attention to in this story is King Herod. Now, just so you know, there is more than one Herod in the Bible. The Herod we are talking about is Herod the Great. Eventually, his kingdom gets split up into his four sons, who are also named Herod as well. So sometimes in the Bible, it can be a little bit confusing. But we're talking about Herod the Great. And Herod the Great truly was great. Having been over to Jerusalem, been over to Israel, and done a three-week in-depth historical and geographical study there, I was amazed when I went over there that every place you go, every place they take you in and around and outside of the city, they ask you a question, hey, guess who built this? And almost always the answer, like Jesus is in Sunday school, Herod the Great is when it comes to that region area. He was an amazing builder. They took us to one harbor where 
Uh, previously, there was just water on the Mediterranean Sea. This guy figured out how to pour concrete underwater and have it harden underwater back in the days of Jesus. He truly was a genius engineer. He built the most spectacular things that region had ever seen. And along with his spectacular greatness in building, he was spectacularly and greatly paranoid. Herod was paranoid as any human being could be. And if he for any moment at any time thought someone might be a threat to his throne, he had them eliminated. This includes wives. This included children and any family member who he even thought might one day approach his throne. One of the stories that I remember so keenly while I was there, and history bears this out, is that there was a young nephew who people said, hey, that's a good-looking fella. Hey, that's a smart fella. Fella, Herod said, oh, that's a dead fella. So what does he do? He says, you know what? People like him. So therefore, I have to get rid of him. I'm going to throw this elaborate party up in this elaborate house, in my elaborate summer house that I've, bit, that I've built, and I'm going to have my, sermon, my, my servants have a pool party, play a game in the pool, and then intentionally drown him, which he did. This is one of many people that Herod exterminated in his lifetime when he felt threatened as a king. When he thought his kingship was being threatened. So we see, not here in this story, but in the subsequent verses, in verses 16 through 18, that Herod orders the slaughter of all the male children in and around where Jesus was born. Look at verses 16 through 18 in chapter 2. Herod's response to the announcement of the birth of the Messiah is this. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious. And he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. The second set of characters we notice in today's story are the chief priests and the scribes. Notice how they are totally indifferent to the announcement of the birth of the Messiah. But isn't, that, isn't it that we should expect they would have been most zealous? They would have been most overjoyed at this announcement? For were the chief priests and the scribes not the ones who had memorized the Bible, who had memorized the scriptures that were available to him, that, that knew the scriptures backward and forward? They were the ones who were anticipating this long-awaited Messiah. But yet, 
when they come and they ask and they know exactly where the Messiah is to be born, they are totally indifferent. As Josh read to us from Isaiah 9, 6-7, these people who wanted to be freed from the Roman oppressors. Can you throw that up on the screen? Oh, I thought that would be tricking me again this time. So, all right, I'll go to my version. Oh, there we go. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to... Oh, go back one verse. Six. Yes, there we go. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father. Prince of peace, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. And if you know anything about the history of this time, I mean, the Jewish people, they hate being under Roman rule. And so the fact that this, the announcement that the Messiah had come, you would think they are the ones who would be the most excited, the most joyful, the most zealous in pursuing where this Messiah was. But yet, according to the story, it created zero movement in their hearts and lives. They did not respond in, in any way but with total indifference and just went, eh. But what about this third set of characters in the story? If you've grown up in the Christian tradition, you may have heard them called the Magi. Sometimes they are called the wise men. These men had traveled up to two years seeking and searching out the Messiah. They had traveled, scholars estimate, anywhere between 500 to 1,000 miles in a caravan just to come and meet baby Jesus. Now, I want to expand your view and your vision of history because I want you to see the beautiful story that God weaves together throughout the entire scriptures but I also want to ruin your nativity scenes for you this morning. From the very beginning, when Adam and Eve sinned, God promised that he would send one who, though his heel would be bruised, would crush the head of the serpent. This is the announcement of the first gospel. From this, God began to build and create a people. First, he calls Abraham out of Ur. And Abraham is our father because he shows us the way that we follow God with faith. And from Abraham, God raises up and builds the nation of Israel. He redeems and rescues them out of slavery in Egypt. He builds this people. He builds them into a great nation. He raises up King David and King Solomon. So around 1000 BC, we have Israel at its entire peak as a nation. But after Solomon 
turns the many wives and then leads the nation of Israel astray, there is just a slow and steady descent into utter chaos for the nation of Israel. And when things begin to spiral out of control, things begin to break down and things begin to break off and, and nation, uh, Israel is dispersed and they are, they are broken down to where there are very few left. But God continues to pursue His people, telling them that He has telling them that I know the plans I have for you, right? That Jeremiah 29 that we all know so well. Just so you know, that's in the context of sending his people off to 70 years of exile, not a graduation verse that says you're going to get a good job and make a good living when you graduate college. It's always important we read Scripture in context. But around... Just before 600 B.C., there's a king that God sends on the scene named Nebuchadnezzar. And Nebuchadnezzar is the king of Babylon. And Nebuchadnezzar slowly takes all of the Jewish people as he conquers them and he brings them into Babylon. And we have these famous stories about three guys, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and how they were faithful to God. And even though they were thrown into a fire, a fourth one, like the Son of Man, appeared with them in the fire, and not a hair on their head or a thread on their clothing was singed. Following that, we get the story of a young man named Daniel whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken away. And Daniel was able to interpret some dreams that no one else in the kingdom could interpret. And here's where we see the beauty of God's story because in the revealing and interpreting of those dreams, Daniel becomes the head wise man over the entire king kingdom of Babylon. And as the head wise man... Daniel was able to teach and to pass on the revelations that he got from God to the other wise men who weren't even followers of Yahweh, the one true king. But look at just one of the prophecies that is given to Daniel in chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. Daniel says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days, and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, and glory, and a kingdom, that all peoples nations and languages should serve him his dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed Daniel was given many prophetic words like this and he passed these on to these wise men to the magi now see God's beautiful weaving of this entire tapestry together that here is this group of men hundreds of miles away that for hundreds of years has been watching the sky, looking to the stars, waiting for the stars to align and appear that this one prophesied about 600 years before was finally here. See, God weaves His story not just in the nation of Israel, but He has weaved His story throughout the world. He has weaved this big, beautiful picture together. And when the time was right, and we don't know if these were men who were actually seeking Yahweh, or they were followers of Yahweh, or they, they were just still 
pagans, and this was just something they were looking for. But these men had been searching and seeking for the Messiah. And there's a reason when they showed up, Herod lost his mind. Not only was Herod paranoid, but these guys were known as the kingmakers. These guys... These guys were the ones who worked behind the scenes in the Medo-Persian Empire. And that in order for a king to be appointed, they had to go through the training of the Magi and then be appointed by the Magi. So when they showed up, it wasn't just like you or I or some common person walked in off the street and said, Hey, um, we know this baby king's born somewhere. Where is he at? No. The ones who were known throughout that part of the world as the kingmakers who established kingdoms, they, with their caravan, okay? Now, you, you get one thing in your nativity scene as the three wise men. Nowhere in anywhere in Scripture does it tell us there are three wise men, even though some bishop in the 1200s said he found the skulls of the three wise men, and you can go view the skulls of the three wise men over in Europe. No, none of that's real, okay? There's nothing about three wise men. Let me just tell you, they came with a large entourage, because you've got to imagine how many people, how much resources do you need to travel two years in the desert, five 500 to 1,000 miles to not be robbed, to not be stolen from, to not perish. So you've got to have a lot of people. You've got to have a lot of resources at your disposal to get there. So there is a large, huge, massive entourage with incredible wealth that shows up at King Herod's doorstep and says, Where is the baby king? Now, this is why your nativity scenes are historically and theologically incorrect. All right? Because you have your nativity scene and you have the wise men at your nativity scene. That is not where they show up in the story. Right? How long was the journey? 18 months to two years. So they do not encounter baby Jesus. They encounter toddler Jesus. All right? So... If you want to have a little fun with your friends and your family uh, this thing this Christmas, then you just make sure when you go home on break and you go, this is all wrong. I can't handle this. We can't settle for this. We need to be historically and theologically correct in our presentation of the nativity scene. So here's what we're going to do this Christmas, family. We are going to, on December the 1st, when we set this up, we will put our nice little nativity here where it's all set up. But we are going to take and we are going to put our wise men over here. However, every day, we are going to inch them a little bit closer to the scene. But by the time they arrive on December the 25th, we will swap out baby Jesus for toddler Jesus, and then all things will be correct in the life of our nativity. All right? So, um, yes, I have ruined more than one Christmas for someone because I told them that their nativity scene was theologically incorrect. So... Um, but I think God appreciates that, and I'm going to stick with that, okay? So, here's what I want. <laughs> yeah. We'll see how Christmas goes in my house. Um, so, I want to point out to you in this story um, the response of the wise men. And I want you to notice something in, in, in detail of how they moved at the announcement of the birth of Jesus. So we see that, one, there is this great announcement. 
we saw that it created a great movement in their life. That, that they were willing to move great distances to go and to encounter the baby Messiah. We see that they celebrated and gave praise for 600 years they had been waiting. I mean, we can't wait 60 seconds for our food from Chick-fil-A without getting disappointed. We can't wait six minutes for our fancy espresso drink from Starbucks to get made or we lose our mind. 600 years they had waited. It was great celebration and praise. They gave great gifts, which are gold and frankincense and myrrh. And if no one's ever explained those to you, those are highly symbolic. Gold representing his kingly nature. Frankincense representing his his role as priest, and myrrh, again, in prediction with the death that he would die, his crucifixion. So the gifts they gave are very intentional. Again, God weaving all of this story together in the, in the lives of even the most unlikely people to where it says they fully worshipped. And so the wise men set an incredible example for us. These magi, these who are least expected, set an incredible example for us. Now, what I want to point our attention to is this. Are the three responses that we see in the story when it comes to the birth of the Messiah. There is the one King Herod who wants to eradicate any and all celebration of the birth of the Messiah by extinguishing his life. There are the chief priests and the scribes who we would expect would be the most excited, the most overjoyed at this long-awaited Messiah for what he would mean, especially for the nation of Israel. But yet they are totally indifferent to his coming. And then third, those who we would least expect in the big story are the ones who are most excited about the birth of the Messiah. Now, because we are in a gathering of the body of Christ this morning, I'm assuming we don't have any Herods in the room, okay? But let's not pretend that there aren't Herods figuratively in our society who are trying to eradicate any and all semblance of Jesus and his representation that, that we take at Christmas, though it is not a biblical holiday, but it is a time that we take to celebrate that, that there are people who want to eradicate any and all memory of the Christ in this season being about Jesus. Now, I am in no way telling you to go boycott Starbucks because they don't put Merry Christmas on your Christmas cup, all right? That is not what we are in the business of in any way, shape, or form, okay? But that is something that is taking place. There has always been this type of reaction to the announcement of the birth of Jesus, and people want to eradicate any and all memory of that. But the question for us as we sit here today, as we enter into the Christmas season, is are you going to respond more like the chief priests and the scribes and go through this season indifferent to the announcement and to the birth of the King Jesus? Or are you going to fully worship like the Magi? Are you going to move in such a way, with such intentionality, 
that your life is representative of King Jesus being born? Are you going to celebrate and praise in, in a way that is appropriate and in proportion to how great an announcement this is that King Jesus has been born among us? Are you going to give gifts in such a way that it is related to an intentional and an alignment with the announcement that the Messiah has been born? Will you fully worship with us in how you live and move and breathe this season? Because I want you to see this this pattern of announcement, movement, celebration, praise, and fully worshiping, it is not limited to just this story. I just want to briefly show you this is the appropriate pattern that we see throughout Scripture when the announcement of the birth of the Messiah first comes to someone's ears. And, and, and last week, Kevin talked about this, and you can, we'll look at it at Luke 2, 8-20. We saw it with the shepherds. Now, Kevin really concentrated on, out of Psalm 151 through 6, he used this story and he encouraged us to fully worship. I want to give it a few more layers to show you what it looks like to fully worship, as I've already described it to you this morning. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night, and an angel of the Lord appeared to them. And the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those whom, with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let us go over to Bethlehem, so we see the movement, and see this thing that the Lord has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up these things, pondering them in her heart, and the shepherds returned, glorifying, celebrating, and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. And if you went back one chapter into Luke chapter 1 to when the angel comes and tells Mary that as the virgin she will bear the Messiah. You see the exact same pattern in her life. So do not mistake that in Mary's first hearing of the Messiah, that in the shepherd's first hearing about the birth of the Messiah, and in the Magi's first hearing, that you see the same pattern repeated over and over and over in all three stories. It tells us that when we hear about the birth of the Messiah, that we can pattern our lives in the exact same way that we would have great movement in our lives, that we would have great celebration in our lives, that we would have great praise in our lives. 
And this is what it would look like to fully worship God in this season as we think about, as we remember, and as we celebrate the fact that the Lord God Almighty did not leave us dead in our sins. But that over the millennia, He has been incredibly faithful to do everything that He said He would do. That He has orchestrated every single movement in history to bring about the birth of the Messiah who for the sole purpose would live the life that we should have lived, to eventually die the death that we should have died, to rise from the grave, conquering sin, death, and hell, so that you and I could be with Him forever. God has orchestrated every event in world history to redeem and reconcile a people like us. So that we could be with Him forever. That is the God we worship. That is the God we serve. That is why in this season, we should move in appropriate ways. We should celebrate in appropriate ways. We should praise God in appropriate ways. Probably in much greater ways than we are doing now. And so ask yourself, if you look back at your previous Christmas seasons, have you seen an appropriate response of worship to King Jesus during the Christmas season? Or do you not? The pattern of Scripture is that when we, have, we realize we have fallen short in an area of our lives, we acknowledge, we confess, and we repent. We acknowledge our shortcoming. We confess our shortcoming to God and to one another. And then we repent, which just means we turn and we go the other direction. So the call in the Advent conspiracy is to turn and go the other direction like Mary, like the shepherds, like the wise men, and away from what we have so easily been caught up in, which is just the American cultural part of Christmas. Now, if I was going to describe Christmas in one word, if I was going to describe the movement that typifies, exemplifies, the kind of the umbrella word that covers all of the Christmas experience over the United States in general, I would use one word. Excess. Some of you are going to be, yes, as soon as this semester is over with and I go home, there will be some excessive sleeping. As soon as this semester is over with, there will be some excessive Netflixing. Some binge watching. Well, now it's Disney Plus, right? We've all got Disney Plus now. For some of you, it will be excessive video games. For some of you, it will be excessive time with family that you wish you didn't have to be excessive with, right? But you're stuck with it because you've got to go home and they're paying the bills, so you've got to put up with them and be nice for three weeks until you return to school. All right. 
But those, those aren't the areas I'm going to focus on because those aren't necessarily where we fall off. We can fall off the, the, the wagon and excess there, but I, I'm going to focus on the two big ones that are most prevalent. Food and money. All right? I'm about to say just some things to you that even though I have, I have preached this series many times over the course of my life and I've recited these facts many times, they still blow me away. The average human being in America over the Christmas season is going to put on 10 pounds. Not 10 pounds of muscle. 10 pounds of the squishy stuff. Now, I just, wanna, I just want you to think for a minute what, what it actually takes to accomplish that over the course of 30 days. All right? In order to put on 10 pounds, you have to consume an extra 35,000 calories above your base metabolic rate. All right? 35,000 calories above your weight. Which is basically like eating an entire day and a half's worth of food extra every day for a solid month. Now here's what's more mind-blowing about this to me. The average person puts on 10 pounds. I don't plan on putting on any pounds. So that means somebody's got to take my 10. So that means there are going to be people who put on 20 pounds this Christmas season. And I know this may not be a big deal for you guys whose metabolism is still young and hot and burning and they're, they're just blowing through food. I mean, man, you guys come over to my house for gospel community and I just watch you eat and I sin the whole time because I am just coveting your metabolisms of how fast they burn through food. And I'm just like, oh, I can eat a piece of lettuce and, you know, that's about all I can do in my, in my early 40s because if you don't watch it, it just goes on in one day. I'm just telling you, you're going to wake up and you're going to go, I'm 15 pounds heavier than I was last month. What happened? And I'm going to say, welcome to getting old. All right? Because time comes for all men. So young men, do it while you can, because one day, Father Time is going to get you. All right. Totally off track. We've got to bring this back on the rails, okay? That's a lot of food we consume. A lot of money we spend on food consuming all of these extra calories. It is a season of excess. But now let's talk about the money, right? I mean, you saw in the video, did you guys see that? Worldwide, we spend over $1 trillion on Christmas gifts. Did you know that's almost enough to pay off all student loans in one time? Student loan debt right now is $1.6 trillion, in case none of you are keeping up. Did you know the average person, again, the average person is going to spend $1,000 on Christmas gifts this season? And you're going, Daniel, don't have to worry about that at all because I don't even have $1,000 in my bank account or on my credit limit. So I can't even get close. But here's the deal. 
If you're not spending it, then guess what? Somebody else is. Now, no one ever plans on spending that money. Last year in Derek's sermon in this section, he said the average person only plans on spending like $8.50, but yet they end up spending over $1,000. Why? Because we really stink at impulse control. Right? Where, where Proverbs tells us we should be reflective thinkers and consider our purchases, we are reactive thinkers. And we just spend and go, oh, I can pay it off later. Right? I can come up with the money somewhere. We spend insane amounts of money on gifts. Now, I'm not saying we shouldn't spend any money on gifts because you can do a lot by giving really good gifts. But what I would ask you is, is like if you really sat and thought about it, you might be able to come up with, you might remember one gift that you got last year. And if you thought really hard about it, you could probably come up with two. But can you even remember gifts three and four and five and six and seven? And if you can remember them, do you even still have them? Or are they just in a trash pile somewhere? I mean, if you care about climate change, there's a pretty good way to kind of help out the climate. Stop buying so much stuff. Stuff that just ends up on the junk pile. We live in this season of excess. So, so what we're trying to do is, here's the, here's the phrase I, I want to give you. Here's the key phrase for today. So if you're a note taker, this is your note. This is what you're going to take. This is what I really want to emphasize is we want to encourage you. And the title of this sermon is to spend less. But the key idea is spend less except where you should spend more. When it comes to the Advent conspiracy, when it comes to turning Christmas upside down, what we are truly advocating to you that we want you to consider and make a pattern of your life is spend less except where you should spend more. Now, you, you've got to remember, and in case you don't know this, our, our discipleship strategy here at Aletheia Church is four E's. Engage, encourage, equip, and empower. And some of you aren't even really thinking about these, these things yet. But, but we realize, because one of our values is beyond Aletheia, we know that in a few years, all of you almost assuredly are going to be launched out into the world somewhere. And we exist to engage with you, to help you become growing followers of Jesus. But we want to engage and encourage you to put appropriate stop gaps and patterns into your lives and equip you and empower you to do that as well. So that you don't end up getting into the massive amounts of debt and the bad patterns of spending that plague so many people. So that in each and every Christmas season, you and your family, the family that you will create and the family that you will start and the family that will grow, will have these, have these ideas in mind and engage in them properly so that you can worship fully and honor Jesus the most throughout the course of your life. So we want you to spend less except where you should spend more. And so just ask yourself for a moment, what would that look like for you in this Christmas season? 
What would that look like if you, if you took the resources that you have financially to say, all right, God, God has given me this pile of money, whether it's a little pile or a big pile. And this is how much I've set aside for this season. And I want to give gifts that are meaningful to those around me. I want to express to people around me that they mean something to me. And I want to link that up with with who Jesus is. And and I want to do good things for them. But how can I do something meaningful meaningful for them, but also have an impact on the world around me in remembering what it is that Christ has done? Because as the people of God, we are called to relieve all suffering. Sometimes we we just think about the eternal suffering. Now, we should especially be concerned about the eternal suffering of someone's soul. But if we see throughout Scripture, God is greatly concerned, even with the temporal suffering that people go through. What does God say is true religion? to take care of widows and orphans. Who often gets taken advantage of the most in this world? Widows and orphans. God says that He is a father to the fatherless. The heartbeat of God beats in these ways toward people. So should not our finances, especially in this celebration and season of His coming and rescue, should it not result in in the temporal and eternal rescue of people who do not know King Jesus? What might that look like for you to establish new ways and new patterns in your life and in your family? I'll give you an example of what it looks like in mine. We instituted this probably five, six, seven years ago. My family, when it comes to to our giving, um, out of our business and out of our income, the first 10% always goes to the church. But out of that, we have another 5% that we just call the blessing fund. So 15% off the top from the, 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 our paycheck goes right into 10% of the church, 5% into this blessing fund. And this blessing fund exists so that at any point in time throughout the year, if we know of someone in need, we just have this pile of money just sitting there and we can just give to it. We don't have to scrounge it up or figure out or go find it, but it's just there for us to be able to give out of. And up to this point, we've never been able to extinguish those finances throughout the year. And so what we do is we sit down with our kids with the leftover from the year and we pull out those Christmas catalogs, right? You've seen, have you, got, you guys all seen these? You get them from Samaritan's Purse, you can get them from Gospel for Asia, all these places. And they have all these things in there that you can buy chickens and goats and bicycles and motorcycles and mosquito nets and you can do microloans for businesses. And, and so what we do is we sit down with that pool of money, we split it among our four kids, and we're like, all right, kids, let's go shopping. Let's, let's take this money and let's do good with it. And we do it for organizations that relieve temporal suffering, but we also know we're going to present the gospel to people who have never heard the name of Jesus. And they take these gifts, and as they're giving them these gifts, they share the reason why they are giving these gifts, and they share the gospel with people. 
So that is how we have been intentional in our lives to take money, to set these patterns in our lives, and to set an example for our children that, hey, you're only going to get one or two things from us. And yes, we could have diverted this money and spent this money on you and put another million Legos on the floor for me to step on. But because I am not a glutton for punishment, you're not getting any more Legos, all right? And, and, and you're going to get one or two nice things, but the majority of what gets given out in Christmas is to other people who are in need of, uh, need of relief in this life in a temporal sense with food and water and clothing and shelter, and in their greatest need, in the need of Jesus. So that's how my family has taken this to spend less except where you should spend more. I would encourage you to start putting these patterns into your life so that you can truly worship and fully worship this Christmas season in a way. Because remember, to fully worship is that at the announcement, so the announcement of Christmas is on the horizon, Christmas is coming, We want to move in appropriate ways. We want to celebrate in appropriate ways. We want to praise in appropriate ways. And like the wise men, they spent, they they gave incredible gifts. I mean, they gave very expensive gifts to Jesus. Could they have kept that for themselves? Could they have kept their treasury full? Absolutely. But they gave lavish gifts to Jesus on behalf of what God has done. And that is what we want to encourage you to do and begin to set as the pattern of your life. And so the questions I have for us is this. What would our world look like if the church started to live this way? What could the world around you look like with the 150 plus people that are gathered here today? One day you will go out into the world, and what if there were 150 different pockets of this taking place in your neighborhoods and in your communities? And what if you pass this on to your children, and then all of them went and passed this along, that there is this radical way that we can capture a moment in the heart of our society that, that really brings honor to Jesus with how we live and move and breathe each and every Christmas season. That we don't make it just about the hustle and the bustle and the trees and the lights and the gifts and the traveling and the food, but yet we truly and intentionally make it about worshiping and serving Jesus. What if we willingly pinched our budgets and felt a little pain for the sake of others? How could the world be transformed if even some of us gave more than we thought we could spare? I'm going to invite the band back up, but as the band comes up, I want us to read this quote on the screen, and I want you to meditate on it. I'm going to tell you, this is the most painful quote I have ever read when it comes to giving. Just so you know, Jesus speaks about money and possessions more than anything in Scripture. More than salvation, more than heaven and hell, more than the kingdom of God, Jesus' favorite subject to talk about was money and possessions. You want to know why? Because it's a really big deal, 
and we really struggle with it. In case you didn't know, today is the anniversary of C.S. Lewis's death. This is C.S. Lewis week in many places around the world. C.S. Lewis was an avowed atheist who radically transformed the world with some great stories like the Chronicles of Narnia. He sat alongside J.R.R. Tolkien. It's Tolkien who actually led him to Christ through his stories like Lord of the Rings. And C.S. Lewis, when he became a believer, wrote some amazing things, some of the most profound things the world has ever seen when it came to Christ and his kingdom. I think this, when it comes to money, may be the greatest thing ever written about money and the most challenging thing I've ever read. I do not believe one can settle how much we ought to give. I am afraid the only safe rule is to give more than we can spare. In other words, if our expenditure on comforts, luxuries, amusements, etc. is up to the standard common among those with the same income as our own, we are probably giving away too little. If our charities do not at all pinch or hamper us, I should say they are too small. There ought to be things we should like to do and cannot do because of our charitable expenditure excludes them. This is a man who had had his heart radically impacted by the grace of Jesus. And it caused him to give in profound ways. Might we meditate on this quote for a moment as they play instrumentally and consider how we might follow C.S. Lewis's example and fully worship Jesus in this Christmas season as we seek to spend less except where we should spend more.